What's going on, guys? It's your boy, Zan Heather. And today we're going to be talking about uh, horrors in the hospital. What Desi kids worldwide need to know about the medical world before they join med school as their parents want them to. And I figured I would have really accomplished doctors, really intelligent individuals coming on the podcast, leaders in the industry um, to just kind of talk about their perspectives and talk about everything that people who aren't familiar with the medical world, what they need to know before they sign up for this, because this is not for the faint of heart. You need to be a special caliber of individual. You need to be a special breed of individual to, to really be successful here. That's why I have these two really accomplished individuals. Uh, doctors, do you guys want to introduce yourself? Sure, I'm Dr. Green. Um, I am an anesthesiology resident in the Midwest. Uh, I'm Dr. Orange. Uh, I also do anesthesiology residency out in the Midwest, too. Thank you, guys. Thank you guys for coming on. I really do appreciate it. Um, before I get started, I just want to say to both you two and to doctors and any other individuals in the medical world worldwide, you guys are the real heroes. You know, recently we got we just uh, suffered from the COVID-19 pandemic and there's still parts of the world that still suffer with that. And um, because of that, I just want to give my respect and love to you guys and to other doctors throughout the world. You guys have had to work long hours. You guys have had to see people die right in front of you. You guys have had to, you know, sacrifice your sleep, sacrifice your emotional, mental well-being. And you've had to sacrifice time with your loved ones just so you are in the hospital saving lives every single day. And for that, I just, you know, to you and to doctors worldwide, like from the bottom of my heart, like, thank you so much. You guys are the real Avengers. You guys are the real superheroes. Give yourself a clap on the back because um, if it, if it isn't for you guys and, and doctors who care, there'd be a lot more dead people. So, so seriously, thank you. Thank you for being in the trenches every single day. Appreciate your recognition, man. That seriously means a lot. Yeah, man. This is what it's all about. Let, let's get into it. Dr. Green, Dr. Orange. Um, and this is where I'm going to kind of shut up. And I would love for you guys to take the floor and really educate me and the audience about what it's like being in your world. Growing up, what was your guys's dream career? Did you guys think that you would join the medical world, be doctors? Uh, I think we, when I started off, like I kind of was almost told, like I felt like there wasn't any other option, almost in the sense of how we grew up, or at least how I grew up. I almost felt like nobody really made it feel like there were any other jobs out there, if that makes sense. I don't know if uh, Dr. Orange had a similar experience or not, but I definitely feel like my parents would make it a point to me that oh like no other job is respected and so for me i i can't say i really had that dream career i mean everyone has like fantasies of being a basketball player a football player right but like anything realistic i can't say there wasn't one um and i think that's interesting once we talk a little more on the show yeah i think um kind of piggybacking off of dr green there um growing up I really had an interest in animals. I thought it was really cool. Uh, just the physiology behind all of it, just marveling at different, you know, species, uh, all of that stuff. Um, so almost kind of gravitated towards the medical field in terms of veterinary medicine and even uh, like bioengineering, chemical engineering, wondering if there was any parallels there. Um, but I think one of the things that really helped out just in terms of where I am today is just a lot of experience, especially in middle school, high school, and in undergrad that kind of gave me clarity, at least moving forward. And uh, it, I felt the same. I felt like I was backed into a corner thinking that uh, medicine was the only way to succeed, really, uh, or that was of any value uh, moving forward in life. And uh, it wasn't until all of these clinical experiences where I actually felt really confident and encouraged to actually go into medicine. And those definitely uh, made me appreciate uh, how much of, of uh, utility it was thinking about all of that. And, you know, it makes me pretty happy and validates where I'm at today. Dr. Green, did you did you feel the same way? Like as you got more experience, you found yourself in this space? Um, partially, I definitely think that more experience has or being good at what I do now in anesthesiology, I feel like I can appreciate the skills I have, which is um, something in all of my um, undergrad or medical school, like I didn't really appreciate much because I kind of 
felt like I was in a place and a job that I probably shouldn't be doing in terms of being in medical school. But then I think I've luckily found something that I love in medicine, which has enabled um, that confidence to come from the procedures I have. So partially, yes, but for the wrong reasons, I think. Wrong reasons. That, that That's interesting. Uh, tell me more about that. Well, I think, um, you know, when we're younger, like what we talked about earlier, like your parents want you to do a certain thing. And for me, I almost feel like I, for lack of a better word, was able to just kind of, I wasn't forced to, I didn't fail at getting into medical school. So I wasn't forced to look at other jobs or avenues of things I wanted to do. It was kind of this dogma of being told that, oh, this is what you're going to do. And you're at at the point, you know, in college, I was kind of like, eh, whatever, like, it makes sense. And I really wasn't passionate about anything else. And I think it would have been done. I think it would have done me a great service if I was forced to be passionate about something else. If I wasn't, if medicine didn't work out, what would I have been passionate about? And I think I lost out on that. And I realize it now because as I'm a resident, I realize how much I kind of don't like some of the work we've done. And I think, you know, there have been challenges like COVID, which has definitely made this worse. But I think overall, at least from the way I see it and my experiences in the medical field, I can see a lot more bad than good at times. And doc, uh, Dr. Orange, before we get to you, because I want you to piggyback off of this, we are all uh, South Asian. And so we all kind of experience the culture. So uh, Dr. Orange and, and as, well, as well as Dr. Green, you, you, you just uh, talked about it right now, talking about how you feel like you didn't really have any avenues of life because what our parents wanted us. Why do you guys think so much of South Asian culture cares that we are in the medical world? Like, what do you think it is about that that has so much of us represented in this field. So it's kind of important to realize historically and topographically what the importance of medicine is, especially in South, uh, Southeast Asian culture and South Asian culture. Coming from our background, um, a lot of the countries within Asia itself uh, have pretty extensive medical training at multiple medical universities within each of the respective countries there. Uh, but what's important to realize is that a lot of the uh, new avenues and staples of medical uh, technology, uh, you know, moving forward with innovation and everything from the medical field stems from uh, a lot of progression from the West, including uh, the U.S. and uh, Europe. So as much as medicine is revered in a lot of those Asian countries there, it's important to realize that there is a higher standard almost set there uh, as far as those who are trained in the U.S. and trained in Europe as well. So uh, it's not uncommon that there are foreign medical graduates or foreign graduates who have also done residency, uh, not just medical school, but residency in other countries and still repeat their residency in the U.S. only because that actually uh, gains them a more superior status as an attending uh, as a practicing physician, uh, and they can get higher roles at an earlier time in their life because they had done uh, a, a U.S. residency of some sort in medicine or a European uh, residency. So for Asian parents to look at all of this and realize, oh, not only are they a doctor, but they are a doctor uh, who has received U.S. training and things like that, conveniently with us being first, second, you know, etc. generations here of uh, Asian background, uh, a lot of people look at the convenience of being in the U.S. Uh, and going into medicine, so to say, as a big thing. So that's where a lot of it stems from. That's where a lot of people see that stable, high socioeconomic background, uh, revered, career and things like that that play into it but especially thinking about you know what country we're in where we're coming from and what this profession historically has meant to us um do you feel do you guys feel like like that that's a great that's a great answer from what i got from it is the stability and like you know the the you know the status you are in life that being an american or a western trained doctor can afford you is a huge incentive of a lot of our of our parents for wanting us to, to go into the doctors but do you guys feel that that kind of 
um, for lack of better terms, that incentive of you get a lot of money, you get a lot of respect, you can be a doctor. Do you feel like that truly creates good medical practitioners or does that create unhappy adults who just happen to be okay at their job? I'll kind of piggyback real quick just because I'll play devil's advocate and also talk about my viewpoint. But I do think that when parents say that, uh, a lot of it is because they've gone through so much of their life already. They've seen hardships financially, uh, you know, moving wise, all of these things. And to see someone working as a physician in the U.S. and things like that, they see all of this, you know, stable, good income, things like that as a way of alleviating almost all hardship. And unfortunately, that's not really true. Uh, in fact, as I'm sure we're going to get into it, it actually instigates a lot of issues, at least in uh, the medical field here in the U.S., um, but I think going back to this point and actually talking more about it uh, from, from the angle that you're talking of, I think it's important to realize that it all comes down to a personal choice. Uh, we have to think about what specifically we want. And going back to very, very originally, as we talked about, all of these avenues of getting experience and exposure to medicine is great. But unfortunately, getting a lot of experience there leaves less room for us to experience things as Dr. Green said, in the things that maybe we do want to do. So mm -hmm. uh, as much as we talk about the stability of everything in medicine, we don't talk about how much could be offered in all of these other occupations as well. We don't talk about the successes in other careers within the U.S. or even in other countries and what can become of that too. Uh, uh, Dr. Green, I was saying, uh, do you feel like to, to piggyback off of what Dr. Orange said, I feel like a lot of how our parents and how our culture advertises going into doctors being in the medical world, I feel like that has a huge factor to do with that personal choice. Like talking about me, for example, if I was advertised to go into medicine, not because of the money or the respect, but the fact that I get to save people's lives, I get to help people who are sick. I get to, uh, you know, have a positive influence on the community and I get to make someone's day a bit better. If, if those were the messages that were advertised to me, I feel like I'd have been way more invested in ever pursuing medicine and obviously I ended up not because I was turned off by the superficiality I was turned off by you know you need you, you're going to make this amount of money you'll get this amount of respect do you feel like the advertising of the medical world has a huge role into the unhappiness of South Asian medical practitioners worldwide I think it does um because growing up I kind of had a similar um vibe as Dr. Orange where you know and I think Dr. Orange put it more eloquently, but in my house, it was like, is it or respect? And, you know, I grew up in the rural Midwest. And so for my parents, they said, nobody will respect you if you're anything but a doctor. And it's a, st and like we said earlier, it's a stable job. And so, you know, when you don't really know what you want to do, you know, you go to four years of college and maybe had more fun than you should have, you are thinking that like you don't you don't really know what you didn't take that time to really explore what you should be doing so you went through this natural path and then um because of what you're told when you're a kid it's a stable job and you'll make money and i think we can all agree that those are important things you know our parents aren't telling us the wrong thing by saying those things for them they also grew they also were in america in a different era I believe, you know, when you look at businesses in the 80s and 90s and 2000s, there were, I mean, even in 2022, we talk about racial discrimination in the workplace. I mean, we'll probably talk about it later in the show, what happens in the hospital. Like, it even happens in the hospital, let alone, you know, corporate America. So I kind of get where they were coming from, where this is a guaranteed way for guaranteed respect. And I see that, definitely, because even the hospital, not everything's rosy, but you... Um, but I think to our detriment, they pushed, not pushed, but they weren't open to the idea that that same respect and that same stability could be attained in other fields. So, so talk, so yeah, guys, talk to me about your personal journeys. Talk to me about from high school to where you guys are now. And you guys are very, very successful. You guys should see their houses. It's awesome. <laughs> but uh, talk to me a bit about your guys's process. Yeah, so uh, I guess I'll start. Uh, I'm from the Midwest area. Um, I know, Zen, you know me pretty well, uh, but I did my schooling close to home uh, and then did med school close to home as well. 
And Alhamdulillah, thank, you know, thanks to God, I matched at residency very close to home, too, just because it's close to family and everything, too. Uh, specifically, uh, the, the, the path that I took was an accelerated pathway. It was two years in undergrad and then the standard four years in medical school. Uh, essentially, uh, we were front-loaded with a lot of the science courses within those two years uh, in order to expedite the process of going through all of that and then going through med school. So it's a BSMD program. So it's a bachelor of science with a medical doctorate after the six years. We just call it a BS degree because it's only two years of schooling and we don't really get a validated, uh, um, degree out of all of that just because it's mostly standardized courses as well. But I'm four years into residency now. Um, looking at jobs at the moment and have something relatively lined up uh, where my wife is going to be. Uh, and then I'll pursue one year of critical care fellowship after that too. Uh, but that's kind of where I'm at right now. Um, you know, Alhamdulillah, I'm, I'm happy for the life that I live, but certainly a lot goes on uh, and had gone on uh, to get to where I am today. And uh, uh, Dr. Orange, really quickly, can you break down the terms like what residency means? Oh, what, yeah, yeah. What, yeah, all of those mean? Yeah, so... Uh, so Four years of high school, that's pretty common here. Uh, and then for undergrad or college, I did two years there. Four years of medical school. So medical school is specifically like a graduate school type level, however, dictated to specifically, you know, medicine. You graduate with a medical degree. However, uh, you can't necessarily practice or at least not to your fullest ability unless you do a residency. And so you have to match into a residency uh, at the end of medical school into a specific field that you can practice in. So I matched, uh, you know, thanks to God, into anesthesiology, which is what I wanted to do. Uh, it's a four-year residency, so it's like training on the job sort of thing. Uh, and so first year is a pretty general year that includes medicine, sometimes surgery. Mine wasn't too surgery incorporated. And then a lot of sub-anesthesia things that are involved in there. Uh, but I've undergone, you know, two more years that were anesthesia based as far as training goes. And then one more last year that I'm in right now, but uh, we're basically acting um, on the front lines here. And as residents, you know, working long hours, studying very hard, uh, being on call a lot more, all of these things that involve quite a bit more work, um, mostly for what is described as experience um, and just kind of getting down and dirty with medicine prior to graduating from you know, this training and before practicing as a full fledged physician. Uh, what about, what about you, Dr. Dr. Green? So I went to undergrad in the Midwest and also went to medical school in the Midwest. I was not on an accelerated program like Dr. Orange. I actually took a gap year between undergrad and med school. And so, um, I ended up uh, alhamdulillah matching in anesthesiology, which um, was also ended up being in the Midwest. It's about five, six hours away from home. So not the greatest distance, but still definitely um, close enough. I mean, you know, it could be as far as I could have ended up in California because one thing that Dr. Orange didn't mention is we go through the match, which essentially means that after medical school, the way that you're placed into residency is basically, for lack of a better explanation, a computer algorithm. And essentially you will put your, um, you will rank almost like the sorority, like how a sorority um, rush goes, basically where the sororities will rank their candidates and the people rush and the girls rushing will also make their list um, of places and then an algorithm kind of matches them. And so in this case, you rank hospitals on your list and the um, hospitals will rank you and essentially the computer algorithm decides where you go. So um, a lot of, you know, I, obviously it's not the most ideal thing to be six hours away from home, at least for me, but it's also, um, it could be a lot worse. It could have been, I could have been in Maine, for example. And so that would have been like a 20 hour drive and you have no control. There are people who are in my residency program. I'm sure Dr. Orange knows people in his residency program who are like thousands and thousands of miles away from home and they almost didn't have a choice in it. And so you end up spending four years in a place that you may or may not want to be in. Mm -hmm. 
So, so did you guys know what you were signing up for before before uh, joining the the medical world? Because this, if coming from me, like from an outsider who has no idea what it's like being in the medical world, did you guys know what you were signing up for? Did you guys know that you're not signing up for a life of riches and just an easy time like how our parents like to to say you know like t just 10 years of education and then you have money for the rest of your life did you know you know going into medical world that that is not the reality that it is a lot of constant hard work and ethic that you have to continuously do so i come from a medical background um i feel like i've learned a lot from uh, a lot of family members just how uh just how involved the medical you know field is in terms of working in terms of research in terms of all of these things that play into it and unfortunately the thing is if everyone can tell you anything about you know just how hard it is or even downplay it at, like to the degree that you say in, in terms of oh here's an investment of you know eight to ten years of your life but after that everything is much better uh in all of these that are told to us but unfortunately even if you're told that those are going to be you know years of hell on end or a decade, you know, purely of hardship there. You don't know what it's like until you actually experience it. And unfortunately, you also don't know how people are going to, you know, tolerate or put up with those situations too until they're really thrown into it. So, you know, going through it, there's always a surprise, you know, every day, every couple of days, every month, things like that. There's always hardships within our training. There were always hardships within medical school with just how hard we have to study uh, I think one thing that's always a shell shock to everyone in the medical field that often humbles us, uh, but sometimes can inflate others' egos too, is that we're progressively going from one high caliber level to the next, uh, just to feel like we're out of place because uh, you might have been top of the class in high school, uh, but suddenly you're graduating, maybe not the top, but still high in undergrad, and then you get to med school, and unfortunately, you're average, if not just getting by. And so it really does feel, and I see, I see Dr. Green smiling over there too, because unfortunately this is something we all experience in terms of like an imposter syndrome, a feeling of, can we make it or not? Uh, do we belong here? So there's always these feelings of inadequacy. A lot of us are, you know, uh, facing depression in this field at some point in time, just because of how much is demanded from us. So uh, it's often talked about how you know hard of a process it is but once we get past it it's easy but no one thinks about what can happen during that time that really affects us mm, that's deep thank you thank you thank you dr orange dr reed yeah uh, did you want to piggyback off that i don't think i could say it any better than dr orange did i mean that's pretty much it it takes a big toll on you and i think those um and exactly what, and actually, even when I was growing up, I don't know, maybe uh, Dr. Orange was told differently, but I was told, oh, after medical school, residency is easy. And I can't say that's been the, I don't know if you heard that before, Dr. Orange. Oh, um, 100%. I was, so I think so, the, 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 very specifically going off that too, is that once you're in residency, you're set. You don't have to worry about chances for anything. And it's exactly. always the thing about chance, especially in our society, is that, you know, there's chance of this. Like, you have to pray. You have to, you know, go to the masjid, go to the temple, whatever, whatever religion, you have to do these and then you're set. And then you know that good things are coming your way if you do this. Same thing, you go through undergrad, you go through high school, you go through med school. Well, as soon as you get into residency, you're set because when it's done, you get a job. And so none of this is really true, uh, at least in its entirety, because unfortunately, you still have to suffer through residency. You have to put up with board exams. You have to worry day by day. Are you doing the right things for patients? Are you going to get sued because of this? And then even then, at the end of all of this, your career is not set. You know, there are some jobs that are completely saturated. There are other jobs that, you know, maybe there are openings, but they're not in the place that you'd like to work. Uh, you know, the salary doesn't meet, you know, everything in terms of a time demand. And we can go on and with all of these indices that, you know, describe the perfect job that unfortunately we don't get because, everyone is doing it too at least there's competition for it and if there's competition clearly people will uh take advantage of that from our end here and uh things won't be as profitable overall and life-wise for us so i think people neglect recognizing just how much is involved in the medical field apart from just being a physician itself 
So, so would you, would you guys say that the 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 medical the medical uh, medical school that you guys have kind of implied uh, about how grueling the process is? Would you say that being in med school prepared you for the grueling realities of the rest of your lives, which is being in the in the medical world as as doctors? Um, I don't think my medical school particularly did a good job of preparing me for the realities of some of the things I've had to deal with in residency. I think the hours are definitely, um, you know, I'd say medical school was a lot easier than residency in the sense that there were less hours and you definitely had more time to yourself. And I feel like now I almost have to count every little minute an hour, which you definitely did in medical school, but it's almost like you count every minute an hour in medical school, but it's that on steroids in residency because you also have to study and work. And usually if you're working 6 a.m. to 6 p.m., then, you know, where do you fit the studying in? And, you know, it's just like being in medical school, except you have board exams that you also have to pass before, you know, they would say, oh, you have to get through medical school, pass step one, step two, step three. And that was it. And then I think the reality of, well, you still have to study in residency and you have to do all this work. Um, and a lot of it is, especially nowadays because of COVID, a lot of the work we take on, at least in my residency, is because there's not enough um, CRNAs or AAs to help with the case workload at the hospital. So they end up keeping the residents to stay late to finish the cases. And this is, I think, not just specific to my residency, but I think this is happening all over the healthcare system. So I think the healthcare system, when our parents were in it, was a lot different. And maybe that's why they kept pushed it when we were younger. Because I can't ever imagine telling anyone that they should do this unless they truly, truly love medicine. And they can't imagine doing anything but this. Then I would say, yeah, do it. Preach. But wow. as far as like in terms of what the system has become, it's not the same. And our parent, what our parents knew or isn't the same isn't the same reality they're talking about a reality that was 15 years ago so so, so talk about that guys like oh how how has the system changed what 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 has it become so i'm sure dr green can probably elaborate on this more than me but medicine has become more of a business model than anything else uh where a lot of administrative feats uh overcome uh pretty much patient care as a whole uh at least in the medical, uh, like in medicine and surgery in clinics, uh, and I'll touch more on anesthesia and what we go through personally, but especially in clinics and stuff, we're seeing providers who are completely burnt out because they have to worry about seeing more patients in less amount of time while still trying to provide quality patient care. And unfortunately, it was already hard enough back then, you know, one to two decades ago, but when you have that baseline and then already stress it even more with patient visits that are only 10 to 15 minutes, you know, getting a full exam in, getting a full history on a patient, going through all their medications, going through their allergies, seeing if they need any other routine checkups as far as their health, addressing any health problems they have and referring to the right specialist. Trying to do all of that within 10 to 15 minutes is far too comprehensive of a system within that time. And so... If you have to worry about that within one day, imagine doing that lifelong, let alone a month, a year, things like that. So it's not uncommon that even full-fledged physicians are experiencing burnout purely because of how much of a load that they're dealing with, with their job on the line because of all of this, only to feel like they're going to end up getting replaced by someone else who will also get paid uh, a lower compared to before salary because of all this too. It's important to realize that even though physician salary itself has actually gone up, it's not necessarily meeting the, pr the, the price of inflation too, or the increase of inflation. So mm. we're not really matching that by any means purely because there's always corners that can be cut per se within a business, always things that administration can do to uh, narrow the playing field from that standpoint. In our anesthesia world, what does that mean? We're usually pressed on what are called our RVUs, uh, which are more or less these base units of how pay is kind of reimbursed in a hospital setting. So we're more or less pressed on our jobs to make sure that we get cases going immediately, that our time for anesthesia and everything, you know, putting a patient to sleep, getting other things that we need to before a case is done very quickly. Uh, otherwise, we go through review processes and, and things like that. So. Uh, I'm sure Dr. Green can elaborate more, but a lot of these systems that are in place are 
less time for patient care, but still giving adequate patient care. And unfortunately, that's not something that can hold up for a lot of providers. And it really doesn't hold up in the system, unfortunately. Mm -hmm. yeah, no, I, mean, I totally agree with that. Yeah, this is um, the system is stretched too thin. There's not enough support staff for all of it's not, you know, going to work when I talk to other people who are working in the corporate world, they have everything they need for work. They have, you know, very relaxed meetings. They have plenty of time to do their work. And I think that's the key. So people enjoy being at work because they have, I mean, if I talk to all of my friends who are working in engineering, you know, they'll tell me, oh, our boss took us to Top Golf. Our, you know, we had a retreat and we played games the entire time. Or, and I hear this story from every field out there where the employer cares about their employees and wants them to be happy when they're at work. And I think that generates better workers and happier workers. In medicine, they've, there is no such thing as that. There are no company retreats. There is no, oh, spend a day at a retreat. That doesn't exist. And it's this culture which makes, I think, people who are pressed for time to do their tasks at work just creates misery all around, which leads to bad patient care. It's and that nobody wants to be there. And I think that's something we've noticed. I've noticed definitely from medical school to residency, and maybe this is partially related to COVID, um, but it's also a big part of it is hospital administrators greed. They want to make medicine is a business and we are in this business model and can't get out. It's almost like you're trapped because you've have so much in loans you invested so much time, forget loans, you've invested so much time into something, and now you're a you're just in the system and you can't get out really because you would have wasted all the tuition money, all the time, and to finish residency, you know, people will get two more years, three more years. Um but that's really the issue here is money has become what's more important and that wasn't existing in, our, in the time when our parents were in this you know, doing medicine. So, so what, what does, what is the daily life of your guys is at, at your job and, and talk about that before COVID and, and talk about that after COVID and, and really how, how that has affected you personally, like you emotionally. Cause, cause this sounds like, it sounds like, like draining, honestly. Yeah. So, um, there's a thing called the ACGME. It's essentially accrediting, uh, a board that kind of governs more or less, you know, uh, resident wellness, uh, specific indices of residency to make sure that it falls within this uh, more or less model of how residency should be shaped out. What are competencies that every resident must com uh, complete and everything like that. Um, so the residency, the ECGME has a, a work hour restriction of 80 hours per week. Um, and so that already sounds like quite a demand as it is to set a limit of 80 hours per week. So off the bat, regardless of even setting a limit and saying, oh, thank goodness, there's a limit, which also wasn't in the past. And a lot of aunties, uncles, prior generations will say, well, we didn't have a limit during our time. Okay, sure. But a lot has also changed as far as the quality of our work and everything too. But setting that limit at 80 hours is already a big deal. So on a daily basis, um, let's say, you know, a day in my life, more or less, for anesthesia, we'll wake up uh, pretty early in the morning. Um, I'll say about, you know, I'd want to wake up between 4.30 to 5. I'm used to waking up for 4.30 for personal reasons as it is, but at least around 5, 5.30 is when I I wake up at 5.45. I can do that. Hey, I, I appreciate that. I mean, that's good on you. I just do a lot in the morning and uh, things like that. But, you know, usually people wake up between 5 to 6, get to the hospital, work uh, to set up their room and stuff between like 6 and 7, and then worry about a 7.15 or a 7.30 case start is usually how it goes. We'll do the and case. What, what What is a case? So a case is anything in the OR, like an operative procedure. Uh, we're on different rotations where uh, we're doing the anesthesia for different operations. So, you know, maybe when we're starting off, we're doing smaller procedures and things like that that are more like outpatient, you know, very short procedures, high turnover, not specifically involved to more complex procedures like open heart surgery, chest surgery, big belly surgeries, 
uh, neurosurgery, things like that, very involved, longer cases, things like that. So, of course, you know, doing these cases, you know, some are more involved at the beginning uh, than not as far as our setup and things like that. But we'll do these cases throughout the day. Um, you know, shorter cases, there's probably going to be a stack of them throughout the day. A longer case is going to be a long case that goes out throughout the day. Um, there's usually a relief system set by like the front desk, as we call it, or the OR desk. Uh, and they kind of have, you know, an all-encompassing view of what the schedule looks like, where each anesthetist, where each anesthesiologist, where each anesthesia resident is, and, you know, where are they looking at in terms of time with their case? Are they finishing up? Are they still going for a while? What can we do time-wise to help these? Uh, so, unfortunately, there is, especially in a lot of tertiary care facilities or larger institutions of medical practice, uh, a lot more of a shortage for these frontliners or anesthetists, uh, which prompts us anesthesia residents to stay later. So I was used to kind of staying maybe anywhere between two to five uh, pre-COVID, but I think with all the staffing shortages and a lot of nuances with that as far as, you know, having more staff in, on board to help with this relief system, I'd get out more uh, along the lines of like, I'd say four to seven-ish now. And unfortunately... Oh. There's a lot of restrictions as far as that goes on a daily basis. So we're working about five to six days a week, sometimes seven, depending on the setting and stuff like that, too. So, you know, not too much time for days off. But as you can imagine, in a normal work setting, we go to work. We still have to muster up some time to study, at least to some degree, on a daily basis. I try to save 15 to 30 minutes every day to try to get some stuff in, do some reading, do some questions. Uh, I'm a scheduling chief, so I spend at least 15 minutes going over some scheduling stuff that I hear throughout the day, working on stuff like that. Wow. And meanwhile, you know, we're still trying to find time to sleep, to eat, to pray. Uh, so mm -hmm. as you can see, it doesn't really promote the most viable or sustainable cycle, unfortunately. Uh, but this is more or less a day in, in my life. And it's also important to know that this isn't even the worst schedule, too. There are other specialties within wow. medicine, within surgery. Uh, that go much later, like, you know, 6 p.m. plus, like 6 to 8, uh, where that can be an issue. They take call on a more frequent basis. And call usually means covering either at home or in the hospital for an overnight uh, period for anything going on with any patients that are in the hospital. So, And that's for 24 hours. Usually. And that's usually correct for, for 24 hours. So wow. um, we're not even taking, I would say, the brunt of it per se. Uh, but certainly what we go through is pretty demanding on a daily basis. And it really leaves very little room for all of the things we want to practice in life. And yet we still kind of have this uh, expectation, you know, from maybe our parents, maybe from family, from the community, that we should make time for other things too. Unfortunately, we right. don't, you know. How often can we go to a Friday halakha at the masjid and learn things? How often can we go to, like, food drive? Mm. How often can we go to the masjid and pray, at least, you know, as a Muslim speaking? So uh, that's my See, In undergrad, you would always have time. That's the thing. Like, in undergrad, it was, I mean, you would have too much time. Exactly. And the thing is, is our schedules are not fixed either. Like we said, this whole relief yeah. system is a day-by-day -day thing. You don't know when you're getting out. So... I'm sure Dr. Green can attest to it too, but like I said, some days we get out at some, yeah. some days we get out at seven, and it's hard to say which one is which. Well, I don't get out at two ever, but definitely I would say like at my uh, program about four thirty to five on average is, and that's with because of all the shortages. The way the residency was designed was that the anesthetists, the CRNAs and AAs could also could there were more of them to cover us so that we could go home at a decent time. But since they're gone, it's just cheaper to hire, to get a resident to stay late because they don't, you don't have to pay anything extra. These anesthetists that we're talking about that can do out of the same job we are doing right now cost about $200,000 plus benefits. So maybe $250,000. Our salary is $60,000. So you can basically ask somebody who you're already working 80 hours a week to do more work for less pay. For nothing. For nothing. I mean, it's not even, like you're saving $250,000. That's where the money making is. You can get residents to do the same exact job and it's cheaper. And and we do a better job objectively. Um, you know, if you look at all scientific literature, we also provide a higher level of care. And so they're getting a more better bang for their buck. It's kind of nuts. I mean, it's a... 
if I, I kind of wish when I was in undergrad, I kind of knew almost like what a ruse the system is in a sense. Mm. I wish we knew everything non-physician related that happens into it in a hospital. Yes. So a lot of the experience that we learn, at least like they see parents or whoever it may be, uh, will guide us towards, you know, shadowing a doctor and saying, Hey, look at how this person practices. Isn't this awesome? Or what do you think of this? You know, isn't this what you want to go into? Unfortunately, and they can talk whoever you're shadowing about everything in their medical career, as far as, Hey, this is the procedure I do. We do this for this reason. These are the things we worry about for a patient like this. What do you think? And so it sounds very cool. It sounds very interesting a lot of the times, especially with how patients, you know, undergo tragedies, but then can get better because of it. But we don't learn all of this stuff in the hospital. We don't learn that when we get hit with a pandemic, that not only are physicians hit, but nurses are hit. And now we're stuck taking care of a patient for a longer period of time because we don't have recovery staff who can, you know, help recover the patient. We don't have inpatient nurses who can, you know, take care of these patients on the floor. So then we're stuck late. Um, you know, all of these things that, that not even are physician involved, but literally beyond that. And it really changes every physician's perspective of their job. And you know, pretty much questions everyone at some point, did they really sign up for the right thing? And so we're so used to shadowing doctors without understanding the system that they work in. Then we actually, we become, because there's not enough nurses, Dr. Orange and I become glorified babysitters. Exactly. We're for hours with a patient to babysit them because there's not enough nurses. And because there's not enough nurses, you can't uh, take the patient to the recovery area because somebody has to keep an eye on them. You know, somebody essentially has to babysit them. They just have to make sure they're breathing. That's literally their job. That's so. And then I think going, going with that as well, not only that, but we feel sometimes even uncomfortable handing off these patients to staff as well, because why is that post pandemic, uh, you know, there's been so much fatigue. There was so much burnout with the pandemic that people quit their jobs, especially within the nursing nursing field and uh, even in the practitioner field. And because of that, uh, you know, more nurses to get them back into the game was to give them these travel nurse positions or, you know, basically pay them, you know, very high rate, but to fill in the spots that were empty in the hospital. So they weren't like routine workers in the hospital. It was just someone fresh from somewhere else getting paid maybe two, three times more uh, to help take care of patients. And I tell you, that's that's kind of a problem in the critical care setting, in the recovery Absolutely. setting, all of these acute patient care settings uh, where you might have someone different and they don't know what to follow, what to do specifically. And that's, they've been trained in nursing. They've been trained in practitioner. They've been trained in some degree of medicine, but not to the specific practice that occurs in, in that facility. And so you might sign out a patient and then all of a sudden something happens, but that nurse doesn't tell anyone or that nurse does the wrong thing or, or even that, even that practitioner, whoever it may be is new and doesn't understand exactly what happens. And then more or less we get screwed as providers, usually the medicine and surgery residents, because then they have to pick up the, the deal from there, deal with that afterwards. And, you know, that creates more time that we're stuck dealing with the patient complication, Worrying about if that patient has to go back to the OR for which, you know, from an anesthesia side, we got to reset up everything, you know, be involved in that case, all of these things. In the ICU, that's a big problem because if some nurses aren't aware of certain devices or things that patients, you know, medical devices that patients are using or are put on and things like that, then, man, what is their care like then? Because there's definitely a discrepancy in terms of how to take care of that person. So... COVID has, I would be very scared to be a patient right now. Yes, I agree. I think patients are, are very much in a sensitive area where there's not a lot of staff. There's staff that's burnt out. And unfortunately, there might even be staff that aren't well-versed in their care. And I wouldn't say it's their fault. It really isn't. They're signing up to a system that's paying them something more of their value, but unfortunately in a setting that they're not aware of. You know, we could do a whole episode on how your lives have 
really transformed because of because of COVID, but we're kind of running a bit low oh, yeah. on time. Uh, so so we, but fr- from the conversation like right now, uh, you know, I can already kind of imply, as I would imagine the audience, that COVID has already kind of exacerbated the issues that you guys have talked about in terms of the business model and the babysitting that the medical world is kind of creating. In terms of, because I really want to talk about this, you know, doctors are always kind of seen as like the Captain America shields, you know what I'm saying? That the, the vibranium shields of the public, but we don't ever think about the toll this is taking on doctors, the toll this is taking on medical practitioners and, and, and even, and even you guys, you know what I mean? Like how, how, like, you know, like what do you observe in the mental health of medical practitioners, like like Dr. Orange, I know you said how uh, suicidality and, and the medical world is, is sky high, and I, I didn't even know that. Like, h- how do you guys how do you guys cope? Like, wh- have you how have you experienced? Because this 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 seems very draining. So, a lot of medicine sources, uh, especially the AMA American Medical Association, uh, this is something I had pulled up for this, but. Um, the consensus is from a lot of research that 13, there is at least 13% of men and 20% of females in the medical field who face depression, whether treated, untreated, addressed, not addressed. Um, unfortunately, that's a very big thing in our field. And, and also, unfortunately, it doesn't help that we come from a community and society that doesn't talk a lot about mental health. So mm-hmm. we're kind of stuck in this hole where uh, where if we feel depressed, then can we really talk about it or not too? And what can we do about it? As Dr. Green mentioned, we're, you know, knee deep into all of this. Uh, we've worked so hard. We've tried to, you know, beat the best of the best to be where we're at. Um, you know, we're so much in debt. It's just, can we keep going? And unfortunately there comes a point when probably for a lot of people that there's just a breaking point and you just can't tolerate anymore. And, you suffice with ending your life. Um, It's a very strong topic. And I think the scariest thing about all of this is it's in the healthiest looking people too, I should say. These are people who Mm -hmm. have worked high caliber for so long. That means emotionally they can act like they're of high caliber too. But it's when no one expects it. It's when no one looks that immediately they can take their own life. There was recently a young female resident who uh, was in her first year and her story is very similar to a lot of others, but uh, it was her significant other who shared a post saying, you know, this was a shock to me that she did this. I didn't get any hint of this, even though I knew she had depression and was struggling with this, but it was such a big hit and it was such an emotional post to, to, to feel that out. But even with all of that support on board, unfortunately the inciting insult of being in the medical field and being put to the test uh, unfortunately, did not uh, have significant value on her life and ultimately affected her in the worst way possible. But it's hard for us, man, especially from our background. People, you know, think depression and all of the things that we go through are very minor things. And especially with being a physician, it's like, well, you have everything. You have money. You have stability. You have all this. You have no reason to be depressed, or at least from a general public view, that's what's perceived. And yet, if we ever look out for help and things like that, it's almost deemed as a sign of weakness, as if you're a poor doctor, as if you're providing poor care. I don't want to get my care by that guy. He's depressed. And so all of these things that really undermine everything that we've gone through, which really sucks. Mm-hmm. And saying it as if from my end, you know, someone who's trial therapy in the past, it's definitely helped out. And I think it's very important that when those resources are available, that we take advantage of it. So we as physicians see it better than anyone else more often than not that seeking mental health is like one of the best things that you can ever do for your health and just praying just eating just sleeping not all of that can cut it a lot of times mm-hmm. it's interesting um it's a sign of weakness to be depressed but it's also makes it seem like we aren't afforded the same resources that you might get in other workplaces because less people are want to say not just for depression but if they need help for something or if they it's almost this expectation that we're supposed to be better than the average human being in the workplace or and it's feels as though you have these higher expectations for example like 
in the OR, I, um, if you need a bathroom break, you know, like there's this expectation that, oh, like you're a resident, you should be able to like hold it. It's like, wow. it's human things like that. And it's kind of like, but you know, if you're an anesthetist, which is, a, you know, a nurse anesthetist, it will, you know, it's more reasonable if they have to ask to use the bathroom. That's one example. I'll give you another one. You know, there was an attending who, he was very sick. I think he had COVID, but he was an older guy. And he actually, to finish his shift, started an IV on himself and gave himself two liters of fluid to rehydrate himself. Even though, you know, most in any other workplace, you would say, go home. Like, you're sick, go home. And in the medical field, you know, during this, what we talk about how, you know, people, if you're sick, you should stay home. But for doctors, it's almost like the expectation is they're somewhere, they're above that. And they should be above that. And, you know, I thought it was it was a very telling sign when even our attendings, are, you know, feel like because they're a physician that they need to fulfill these duties. Although in any other workplace, you wouldn't expect that. Mm. Wow. I, I I had no idea. I had no idea about that. This, this is stuff that nobody would ever would ever expect like how how can we b both you know talking from like you know just friends and family perspective and also among your your contemporaries how can we help support me medical practitioners B because you you guys are you guys are truly heroes you guys truly are how i think of the avengers how i think of the justice league you guys are out there saving people's lives and it, and it's not right you guys are treated like that how can we help support you guys the laws need to change and that's a simple fact so the w reason that this 80 hour work week is in place and all of these things that control residencies is because um I, about 20 years ago there was a patient who died in new york city because Essentially, the residents were tired. They were working a 24-hour shift, and they were too exhausted and made a mistake. Okay? And the girl died. She was an 18 or 19-year-old. Okay? So then the parents were pretty wealthy, so they sued the hospital, and they didn't end up suing the residents because they figured out that the hospital made them work over 24 hours, mm. or about 24 hours. And so, long story short, in New York State, they passed some laws Basically, actually, there was no work hour limit back then. It was now wow. the law that they passed was for 80 hours. <clears throat> and then in Congress, the AMA, the American Medical Association, basically underneath a bill that had nothing to do with medicine or residency, slid in passage of uh, essentially laws that basically prevented residents from enjoying the employment protections that you get in other fields. You know, the it's because it's like almost like if you're you have a non-compete because you can't switch residencies easily. Um, you know, in every in every job, you know, if you work at McDonald's, you can work at Burger King the next day if you want. You know, unless it's in the contract, but that's obviously I don't think they do that. Right. But with medicine, it's weird because you're forced to sign whatever hospital you sign, you end up matching at, you're forced to go there and you can't technically change residencies, but it's like very difficult and it usually doesn't happen. Mm -hmm. um, so that's kind of the legal background behind how the AMA basically, because the AMA foresaw that they would lose millions and probably billions of dollars if residents had to work less hours or if that became a law that could be changed at the state level. They passed it at a federal level so that it couldn't be altered anymore, essentially. It's like uh, not a great explanation of it, but I think that's a pretty good summary of it. It's a good summary. I think it's important to realize, too, that re we're talking about residents here, like, you know, like on the job training and everything. And we're saying resident nonstop here. Well, resident is someone who resides. So the term itself was coined from someone who stays in the hospital, who basically lives in the hospital. Wow. So yeah. It's really important to realize where even the standard is coming from. And just to say, okay, well, we'll limit it to this much doesn't mean that it's any more sustainable or anything. And a lot of the time you go over it, the programs don't get in trouble for violating. You know, at work, if you work 45 hours instead of 40 at a normal job, you are paid for those five hours. Correct. We don't get wow. it. We, get, we will make fifty-five to $60,000 for working possibly 80 hours every week. That's less than the, what per someone makes at McDonald's. And, and we do the most work. And the paradox quickly just off of that, too, is that if you report that you're working more than the number of hours stated 
your residency is at risk then. And then you lose right. that residency. And then where right. do you go from there? It's like Dr. Green said, it's not really easy to translate into another residency or things like that. So you're kind of digging a hole with your residency when you do that. So unfortunately, it's not like they'll give leniency at the get-go. There's been some residencies where they will burn the residents are that, you know, hated to the system or that they hate the system that much that they'll burn it. And I've seen that recently. Uh, and they're willing to burn, you know, their own bridges in the process. But again, where do they go from there? And so unless you really know that you can get a residency somewhere else or all of that, which is very difficult, it was already very difficult for us to get into residency in the first place, let alone swapping over. So right. to even report these is very, very concerning. So, so, you know, obviously we got to have the laws to, to change. Um, and, and, but how, how, what can we do to help support you guys just, just emotionally? Like, what can we do to just make you feel valued and, and, and make you feel like truly like you, you guys deserve so much respect. Like what can we do to, to make you feel like you guys are just as human as, as people in other professions. So I think uh, one thing, and this will touch on, you know, a lot of what this podcast is truly meant around too, is that there's this expectation that, you know, because we're this hardworking and everything that we should be attending everything. We should be attending the Dawahs. We should be attending these parties. We should be going to the like masjid, mosque, things like that, because we're that studious of uh, individuals here. But I think it's important to realize that sometimes we just need time to ourselves. I mean, if we don't even have that much time to eat and sleep and all of that, uh, a lot of understanding and, you know, you and a lot of friends and family have been very understanding and just saying, you know, let's give them some free time. Let's just, you know, leave it be. We'll catch up at a later time, things like that, or work around, you know, schedules. It means the world to us because truly when we don't have that much time, we're really stressed because now we're guilty of not spending time. But when everyone is asking, hey, hang out with us. Hey, do this. I never see you around. And I don't know, it really puts us, at least me, in a mood uh, when I don't get to do these things. And I feel even more guilty when someone asks. And I'm like, darn, I don't get to do this. But I don't really have much of a choice. I think um, one of the things we didn't touch upon is this process of going to medical school and going to residency, I've lost a lot of friends along the way um, because they don't understand. And I think that's the one thing no one told me was you wouldn't have that much time for your friends. And so, and, you know, people would say, oh, like, he doesn't want to hang out. Like, you know, in medical school, like I would, people would say, oh, like, you never call, you never hang out. Like, we don't make plans anymore. And you, you become distant with a lot of friends. And I unfortunately feel that that's the price I paid significantly. And so to kind of echo what you said, uh, Dr. Orange, but it feels a lot. That's, a, that's definitely something that I think would be the biggest cost of going through this process at that time that I lost in, I would say my mid twenties and early twenties that nobody really, you know, I don't, I think that's an understated point here where it's the time that we lose from when we would be, kind of exploring other things in our life. You know, I don't think Dr. Orange, you or I have actually left um, the area we're from really to live. And so, you know, that's something that you do get like, that would be something we would should have got to do. And so that's something where the system will kind of um, unfortunately control that for you. I wish, I wish we knew what the sacrifice was, but would have been yeah. doing this. We're told of, I think if I knew that oh, yeah. we're told of the benefits, but I wish we kind of knew what to expect as far as what we would lose along the way. Um, yeah. If I knew what I know now, it would have been enough for me in undergrad to say no. Like, wow. but because I didn't know. And I said, and I was being told all these things and you're, trusting of your parents you say okay they're probably right and i mean there was no way to predict like the staff shortages and covid and like i don't think anyone could predict that right yeah. but i definitely think the system was going towards that direction it was definitely being built to we're not here today in the medical world because of covid we're here because of all the decisions that were made in the 2010 2015 by the hospital systems and by insurance companies to basically make medicine a money game it's a game to make as much money as you can um, and that's what it is. So have I, 
if I knew what I knew today back then, I would have said, nope, figured something else out. Um, and even now, to be honest, I think when I am graduate from residency, I won't work more than two or three days a week if I don't have to. I think, uh, you know, because I think the system's broken. Yeah. And there's a lot of people who share that same, that same uh, viewpoint as Dr. Green over there. I've certainly debated it several times on end and coming from an accelerated program, uh, unfortunately, or maybe fortunately, there's not too many of those in existence now compared to what they were five, 10 years ago, because mm. they're not willing to promote one, uh, you know, an accelerated track for people who don't feel like they're ready for it. And, mm. you know, coming fresh out of high school, how do you really know if that's what you want to do, especially when you're not aware of everything that's involved? And two, it's also a very lucrative system for a college to keep you in place for five years, like four years in a gap year, as opposed to just keeping you in for two years. So they can milk you for two to three more years of tuition that way, too. So unfortunately, that, that system is just really, really drawing out the years here. So a lot of the people in our community and things like that who say, oh, it's only this many years, it's growing. It's, you know, at least another year more, maybe two. I have a friend, actually. He is a year older than me and just started pharmacy school. Man. And I'm almost done. You know, that's just it's because he tried to get into medical school for so long and just eventually gave up, um, you know. So the system has taken years and years of people's lives, and I just don't think it's worth it anymore. It's not for this. For what we're getting out of it, it's not worth it. And if you, unless this is truly the only thing you ever could see yourself doing, there's a million other things to do. Wow. Yeah. Well, and and you know, I, I, we're gonna we're gonna have to end the show here because this has been a very, very, very uh, deep conversation, and I don't want to take too much of your guys' time. And to be clear, I am not glamorizing your guys' pain and suffering. I'm not, you know, making a Trojan war horse scenario out of it. But, but what I'm, you know, what I'm saying is, despite all of these hardships and, and despite everything, which to be perfectly clear, nobody should have to do. And we're going to change that. Like I'm actually thinking of starting a rally uh, downtown and be like, you know, we need to treat doctors with more respect. Like I'm so serious about this, you know, like, I like seriously, resident doctors, like the whole system. Yeah. You know, like, like I, I wanted, I want to start a rally and you know, that would benefit, you know, obviously patients. Cause that was a very powerful point. You guys said this to, now is not a good time to be a patient, but also benefit you know doctors and and you know uh uh you know what was the term pra practicing doctors or, or uh, attending uh, physicians or att attending physicians. physicians yeah yeah like like we need to do better by that and i say that to say despite all of that you know dr green dr orange you guys are still here uh grinding at, at the hospital and the only reason that i can logically come to that conclusion especially with all of the, you know, the, the realities of the game you guys have described is because you guys truly care about other people is the fact that you guys, at the end of the day, you don't want to see other people die is the fact that you guys truly care about your fellow man. And, and that is something that, you know, like from the bottom of my heart, like, you know, I, I don't take that lightly. You guys truly are superheroes. You guys truly are uh, legendary individuals to, to constantly put your personal, you know, uh, wants and desires aside for the betterment of other people. I mean, that's the only reason why I would imagine you guys are still doing this, you know, still in the game. Uh, seriously, I, I, you know, you guys are, are legendary and then especially with COVID. And I know we didn't have a lot of time to, to talk about the specific of COVID, you know, hopefully in a future episode, we can talk about that because that's a whole nother topic in itself. Um, you know, you got you guys have been through the the gutter. You guys have been through the mud, and you're still here, and you're still providing. You you guys, to, to quote Kevin Durant, you guys are the real MVPs. Like seriously, you guys are the real MVPs. You you guys you guys truly are Appreciate you guys that. truly are special individuals, man. No no, thank you seriously. Like thank you for your service. Like like seriously, thank you for for working every single day giving quality care and, and you are the reason why so many people are still alive. Like in my opinion, you guys are Avengers. So I'm going to start calling you Avengers. <laughs> like, like seriously, you, you guys are nothing but respect to you guys. You guys are warriors. But with that, this is the end of this South Asian soliloquy really quick guys. Do you have any words, any, any, you know, just to end the show, do you, do you guys have anything you would tell South Asian parents and, and South Asian kids 
who might be listening to this podcast and are in high school and are being told, go, go, go to medicine. Do you have anything to say to those families? If you value your life, you will think very hard about what you'd want to do that interests you for the rest of it. Because this field is not meant for those who do not value uh, practicing it. And unfortunately, historically, we don't want to see kids, residents, physicians, whoever, terminated in the most saddest way and the most cruel way possible, all because they were pressured into it. There are multiple avenues that we have learned to attain wealth, attain stability, attain all of this. And, you know, we can only count our blessings up until being forced into something like this. All I want to say is do what you love. You can make a career out of anything, especially if you try hard enough. I would say make a choice. I think I didn't make a choice. I let fate, destiny, or maybe the natural logical progression of events bring me to the point I am today. Um, and looking back, I think the best advice I'd give someone in high school or even college is make a choice for yourself, figure out what you want to do and stick by it. I mean, you have to make it and then you, you can choose a hundred things in life, but I think you can only, but you, whatever you choose, you can make that the right decision. And I think we don't think about that enough is sometimes there is no right answer. It's just about making that answer the right one, whatever way you do it. Dang. <laughs> That's powerful. I'm going to I'm going to go to bed thinking about that. <laughs> that that's powerful, yeah. but you know like with, with 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 that with that yeah, thank you. Thank you so much Dr. Green. Thank you so much Dr. Orange. Thank you for coming on to 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 South Asian soliloquies and and you know educating us, you know. This is something that we need to hear and uh, uh you know, take care guys. Like seriously, get get some rest after this. Thanks go, for go, having get us. Some, go get some please. No. Yeah, appreciate it. Yeah. No problem. Get get some rest, guys. Have a good night, guys. All right. Take care.